Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is episode 10, The Pursuit of Power Part 3, A New Millennium and a New King. Today's show sees the start of one of the greatest conflicts early medieval Ireland had ever seen. In a titanic struggle between the O'Neills and Brian Boru, we will see these two great powers of medieval Ireland pitted against each other in sieges and daring naval raids in a story that's riddled with deceit and deception. We will also take a look at medieval life in Ireland as the year 1000 approached and see what it would have been like to live in this war-torn world. Muel Shocknell MacDonald known to history as Muel Shockner II, was king of the Southern O'Neills and the High King of the overall O'Neill Federation. Through his life, he had defied all the odds. Indeed, his coming to power at all was a feat in itself. Muel Shocknell had grown up amid the chaos, raids, war and brutality of the O'Neill civil wars that we covered in episode 8. He had fought many battles, lost several, Yet he had survived, a conflict that had seen many of his family killed. Despite numerous setbacks, including seeing his family lose power for the first time in 200 years, he had returned and risen first to be king of the Southern O'Neills. And then, in 980, he had taken the high kingship when the old king, Donal O'Neill, had died. With these achievements under his belt, he didn't stop. Indeed, he went on to even greater heights in his first year in power. That year, 980, he scored one of the greatest victories any high king had enjoyed. 
The victory took the shape of a momentous, crushing, fatal, devastating victory over the Dublin Vikings at the Battle of Tara. It had all happened within a few months of Wales Shocknell coming to power, when the Viking King of Dublin, Anlov Coran, had attempted to usurp him, leading an army deep into Moel Shocknell's territory of Mead, to the age-old symbolic site of Tara. As a new king, many might have thought Moel Shocknell was vulnerable, but as we saw in the last episode, not only did Moel Shocknell crush Anlov and his Viking army, but in the aftermath of the battle, he pursued the Vikings south to Dublin and ended independent Viking power in the settlement. He did this by exiling the king, Anlov, and appointed his own half-brother, Glunearing, as king. Glunearing, which means irony, was half-Viking, half-Gaelic-Irish, in that his father was actually Anlov, but his mother was a woman called Dunla, who was also Mwael Shocknell's mother. Within one bold move, Mwael Shocknell had not only eliminated Viking Dublin as a threat, but he had effectively put himself in control of the city, its vast wealth and military forces through Glunearing's rule. It was a masterstroke, one that would not even have been dreamt up by his forefathers, who had always tried to destroy the settlement rather than control it. On top of this great achievement to make things better, Well Shocknell II was also largely free from an internal threat, an issue that had plagued so many of his predecessors. His main internal rival was the king of the other branch of the O'Neill Federation, the Northern O'Neills. However, the Northern O'Neill king was a man called Fergal MacCunning, who rose to kingship in 980. Fergal, however, was kept busy fighting local struggles in Northern Ulster and was never able to emerge as a threat to Moel Shocknell, who was clever enough to leave well enough alone. Indeed, he had seen what provoking the Northern O'Neills into a war could lead to, as he had endured the decades of civil war in his youth. Although this policy effectively meant that the Northern O'Neills would remain outside of Moel Shocknell's control, it led to an internal peace of sorts. To achieve all this in his first year was truly an outstanding achievement. But for Mwael Shocknell to shore up O'Neill's supremacy and return the kingdom to the power it had once enjoyed in the early 10th century, there was just one other threat he would have to deal with. From a distance, this should have been easy. Now the threat came in the person of the King of Munster who we met in episode 8, Brian Baru. He had come into conflict with Mwael Shocknell's predecessors, and although Brian had been able to grow in power in the 960s and the 970s, eventually becoming the King of Munster in 978, this at the time could have been written off because the O'Neills were just too busy fighting each other to stop him. Now, however, after he had dealt with internal enemies and the Vikings, Mwael Shocknell II could devote all his attention to a man he would probably have regarded as a blow-in as Brian Baru's family had only been minor royalty a few decades previously. Indeed, it didn't take long before Mwael Shocknell would have to go to war with Brian. As we saw in episode 8, Brian was expanding constantly and soon he was about to call into question Mwael Shocknell II's authority. 
This war would be far from short, however. Anyone who felt the great O'Neill High King would easily upend this upstart King of Munster from Thomond was in for a rude awakening. This war would dominate Gaelic Ireland on and off for nearly three decades and become one of the most famous encounters in medieval Irish history. The inevitability of a conflict between Welshocknell and Brian was evident to everyone. Welshocknell was trying to restore O'Neill dominance, while Brian seemed to have an insatiable desire for expansion. The spark finally came in 982, when Brian, characteristically, attempted to expand his power beyond the borders of Munster into the Nor Valley and the Kingdom of Ossery. The attack itself was unsuccessful, and although the army of Munster wreaked havoc, they failed to force submission or take hostages. But Brian must have known he had just stirred up a hornet's nest, perhaps intentionally. Through his attempted expansion, he was clearly challenging Welshocknell's authority as the dominant king in Ireland. Brian knew that Welshocknell could not allow this attack. He would have to check it somehow. The response from Welshocknell was what we might expect. Direct, brutal and to the point. He gathered his forces and headed south, but not to Ostery to reassert his authority there. Instead, he went to the heart of the problem and attacked Brian Baru's home kingdom of Thomond. In attacking the place that Brian had grown up as a boy, he was sending out a clear message. This challenge from who he saw as effectively a nobody, whose grandfather had probably been a mercenary in O'Neill armies, would not be tolerated. As the O'Neill army raged across Thomond, home of Brian Baru and his people, the Dalkosh, they went to the site of Magadair, where Brian Baru and the previous kings of the Dalkosh had been crowned. They desecrated this immensely important site, cutting down a sacred tree of huge symbolic importance. This act must have shocked people to the core, to trample on tradition and custom in a society where this was all important. This was no mistake, however. Well, Shocknell fully knew what he was doing. In the aftermath of the attack, amid the ashes of the site of Magadair, Brian no doubt understood what Well Shocknell was telling him. He was out of his league, and he had no right to challenge the mighty O'Neill king. It was clear in the aftermath of the attack on Tormund and the desecration of the site of Magadair, life for Brian Baru would never be the same. Two things could happen. He could shrink back, becoming a local king, and accept the authority of the O'Neills, perhaps hand over hostages like so many challengers before him. Or he could strike back and start a direct challenge to O'Neill hegemony in Ireland. Brian chose the latter, and given his actions over the previous decades, where he had literally fought his way from obscurity to taking the kingship of Munster, it probably didn't take him long to make up his mind. He paid no heed to the message Muelshocknell had so graphically sent him. Indeed, if modern comparative acts are anything to go by, he probably used this attack as an emotive tool to rile up his kinsmen into supporting a war. Because, as we shall see next, the following year, Muelshocknell was about to learn 
that it would take a whole lot more than desecrating a sacred site to stop Brian Baru. In 983, the year after Mwell Shocknell's attack on Thomond, Brian replied with equal ferocity. He did not directly attack Mwell Shocknell, but illustrated the threat he could pose when he attacked what was the soft underbelly of O'Neill power, the kingdoms that had been forced to submit to Mwell Shocknell's authority. First he sailed up the Shannon River, attacking the Kingdom of Connacht on Mwell Shocknell's western flank. To underscore his resistance, to Mwell Shocknell's rule, later that year he returned to Ossery, the kingdom over which the conflict had begun. This time he was far more successful when he captured the king, Gullafodrig. In this campaign he even pushed further into western Leinster, where he took hostages from a kingdom supposedly under Mwell Shocknell's control. Bit by bit he was no doubt eroding Mwell Shocknell's power. As word arrived into me to Mwell Shocknell of the attacks first in Connacht and then in Ossery, he must have begun to get a picture of the man he was facing. Regardless of his humble origins, Brian Baru was going to be no pushover. There would be little peace with Brian. He was never going to submit. This was shaping up to a fight to the death. In 984, the looming storm clouds of war between the O'Neills and Brian Baru grew darker. Had there been a colour-coded crisis scale in 10th century Ireland, it probably would have moved from yellow to red in 984, when Brian dramatically upped the ante. It all began with a meeting in the Viking settlement of Waterford, where the sons of Brian Baru met Viking warlords from the Irish Sea and the islands off the coast of Scotland. At this meeting, they forged an alliance that would see them jointly launch an assault on Leinster and then culminate in an attack on Dublin, which was now loyal to Mwell Shocknell. Its success was surely in its audaciousness. No one would have expected this. To shore up this alliance, in accordance with custom, the Vikings and Brian's envoy swapped hostages. These hostages were usually significant people from their kingdoms, often princes. These hostages would go voluntarily, but they must have had a look of slight apprehension as they went into captivity. It was they who would pay the ultimate price if the deal collapsed or either side double-crossed the other. In this case, they need not have worried. Indeed, the attack would go down as one of the greatest military operations of the age. With Brian's overland strength and Viking naval power, they launched a giant pincer movement on Leinster. The first arm of the pincer took the shape of the Vikings, who sailed around the coast and attacked the Akinchalig kings of southern Leinster. Meanwhile, Brian, with his ground forces, steamrolled east through Ossery and into northern Leinster. They wreaked untold destruction, destroying churches, fortresses and carrying away huge amounts of loot. Just imagine the situation the people faced in Leinster when they realised they were caught in a vice-like grip by Brian on one side and a Viking fleet on the other. As they prepared to meet the initial invader, word would quickly have spread of the onslaught of a second army ravaging their way through neighbouring kingdoms behind them. Amid such chaos, there could be only one winner, 
and Brian and his Viking allies emerged victorious from where they could push on to their ultimate goal, the wealthy settlement of Dublin, which lay north of medieval Leinster. In Dublin, panic must have gripped the settlement when word arrived of this dual force moving against them. With a large naval Viking fleet that could blockade the city from the sea, cutting off the escape route so often used by the Vikings when all else had failed. Riders would have been dispatched to north surely by Glunearing, the king, to his half-brother and ally, Mwelshochnall, as they waited on tenterhooks for an army to relieve them. They were saved, not by Mwelshochnall, but when Brian had to call off the attack, when news arrived of a revolt against his rule back in Munster. Although Brian Baru seemed all-powerful as he launched that devastating raid on Leinster, he was in reality no different to other kings in medieval Ireland, in that his power was always relatively weak. He didn't rule over a structure that was in any way as cohesive as a modern state. Brian, like his fellow contemporary kings, expanded their power by forcing other kings to submit to them. These kings, and their kingdoms, then became part of the overall area underneath their control, ruling over what was at best a loose federation or confederacy. This was, as you might imagine, not very stable. Many of the minor kings resented being forcibly added to bigger power blocks and only remained in submission until they saw a chance to revolt. It should come then as little surprise that when Brian was away campaigning in Leinster, the Dacia kingdom, a small kingdom in modern-day County Waterford, saw their opportunity and rose in revolt. We don't know the exact details, but soon Brian had far more pressing concerns than expanding his power into Leinster when he faced a threat in his own kingdom. If he didn't deal with this, other kingdoms could soon follow suit in revolt. The revolt of the Dacia was no minor event. Indeed, it would take Brian two years to subdue the Dacia. Now when I say subdue, I mean he utterly annihilated them in several campaigns, which, according to the annals, saw many people killed and the king of the Dacia flee. By 988, Brian had broken or eliminated the Dacia's will to fight and was in again a position to go to war with his major foe, Melshochnall. Now, however, Melshochnall had had time to prepare and a major confrontation was on the horizon. Having had the better of the early encounters, Brian can only have been confident in 988. He again enlisted the help of Viking allies. After the successful campaign of 984, they this time turned their attention north, focusing directly on where Shocknell's home territory. For an army that seemed as comfortable on water as they did on land, they chose the quickest route north from Munster, that is, up the Shannon River, moving in an enormous fleet. The annals of Inishfallen claimed there were 300 boats. They followed the river north, arriving into Lochry, the second largest lake on the Shannon. From there, they were able to ravage Mwelshochnall's lands. Mwelshochnall and the southern O'Neill were helpless. The big naval power in the O'Neill kingdoms were the northern O'Neill, 
now standing aloof from the conflict. The little unity they once had with Moya Shocknell's Southern O'Neills had been smashed by the civil wars of the 960s and 970s and this left Moya Shocknell very vulnerable. From their fleet on the Shannon, Brian and the army of Munster inflicted huge damage on Moya Shocknell's kingdom. However, what should have been a great campaign was tarnished when a small force of 25 ships struck Weston to Connacht. Underestimating their foe, this force would never return, having been trapped and destroyed in the West. Despite the successes of this campaign, as the winter of 988 set in, there was no conclusive victory. Indeed, it seemed as far away as ever, and it was clear that it would take one hell of a knockout punch to end this war. As 989 came around, it was Mayo Shocknell's turn to have a go at landing that blow. That campaign in season found him and an O'Neill army penetrate deep into Munster, killing a local king as far south as modern-day Cork. However, like Brian's campaign had been overshadowed in 984 and halted by a revolt, Mayo Shocknell likewise had to cut short his campaigning in 989 when word arrived of the passing of his stepbrother and ally, the King of Dublin, Glunearing. When it emerged that Glunearing had been murdered, the repercussions were immense. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, 
H-E-L-P.com slash Irish History. When news arrived to Wales Shocknell of the death of his brother and ally, Glunearing, the King of Dublin, he must have begun to worry. This was a crisis in the making, given the problems Viking Dublin could pose, and since Glunearing was dead, a new king would emerge, one not necessarily loyal to Wales Shocknell. The details of the incident are not entirely clear now, and indeed they probably weren't entirely clear in 989. Different sources attribute different reasons to the murder. For example, the Annals of the Four Masters say he was killed by a slave called Colbon, while the Annals of Inish Fallon claim he was killed by his own people in a drunken argument. The likelihood is, whoever killed Glunearing, a slave or his own people, they had higher motivations or backers. Either way, Mwell Shocknell seems to have smelled a rat, and he was right, because when he found himself outside Dublin with an army, he was locked out of the city, which had been his former ally. This was nothing short of disastrous for Mwell Shocknell. A few weeks earlier, he had been in Munster attacking Brian. Now he was facing a crisis that would threaten his whole plan. He knew all too well how poisonous relations between the Dublin Vikings and the O'Neills could get. Indeed, it was these very Vikings' fathers who had killed a previous High King, Congoloch Machmuelmuehig, in 956. Muel Shocknell was not about to allow a hostile power emerge at Dublin, and he began what was one of the earliest, but not necessarily the last, sieges of Dublin. In 989, the O'Neill army pitched outside Dublin tightened a noose around the settlement. Inside, the Vikings were completely unprepared for a siege, with low stocks of fresh water. According to the annals, the O'Neills fought the siege at close quarters, as the Vikings were unable to access the water in the rivers that surrounded Dublin on three sides. It's also possible that they would have poisoned the rivers by trapping dead animals in the water flow. Either way, it seems that the Vikings were unable to access fresh water. After three weeks, they were in a dire state. According to the annals of the Four Masters, they were reduced to drinking brine, a salt solution used as a preservative. While sieges usually provoke images of armies attacking 20 metre high stone walls with siege engines and movable towers, the defences and attacking equipment at the Siege of Dublin in 989 would have been far more rudimentary than that. The city had no stone walls, for example, in 989 and was defended by earthen banks probably topped with a palisade and protected by pointed stakes driven into the bank. The fact that the siege could last weeks, though, does illustrate that these defences must have been quite impressive all the same, but they could not help with the issue of a lack of water. With the Vikings trapped without water, Mwelshochnell seems to have been happy to wait and after 20 days, the Vikings finally relented, having been reduced to dire straits. Entering a settlement that was presumably devoid of any living animal having all been eaten, and looking at a population ravaged by drinking salt water, Mwell Shocknell did not destroy the city. His relationship with Glunearing had shown him just how valuable it was. When he finally got into Dublin, he presumably executed those implicated in his stepbrother's death. 
but the main punishment on the settlement was financial rather than physical. Each house in Dublin was levied for the enormous sum of one ounce of gold to be delivered to Muel Shocknell on Christmas Eve each year. This indicates just how wealthy Dublin had become. On top of this, symbolically, Muel Shocknell also took certain valuables from the city, in particular the Sword of Carlos and Tomar's Collar, which were heirlooms of the city. These were symbols of Norse power used by the Viking kings and in a similar fashion to cutting the Dalkosh's sacred tree, Muel Shocknell was illustrating who was boss. When Muel Shocknell finally left the city, the Dublin Vikings were under no illusion of their place now in Gaelic society. Their days as an independent force were clearly gone. This had been evident as early as their defeat at Tara in 980. But in 989, Muel Shocknell had shown again that they were now just a B-rate power in Gaelic Ireland, dependent on their relationship with bigger kingdoms. From Muel Shocknell though, his thoughts probably weren't on the defeated Vikings. They were more of an annoyance at this stage. The real issue was Brian, still out there, challenging his authority. Brian and Muel Shocknell, at this stage, had attacked each other year after year and still neither looked like gaining a clear victory. It was in this scenario, though, that Brian was a de facto winner. Muel Shocknell was supposedly the High King, and the power was all his to lose. Benjamin Tucker, the historian, best described the High Kingship in Gaelic Ireland when he said it was not an office as much as a recognition. Clearly, Brian, who was nearly in possession of the southern half of Ireland at this stage, did not recognise Muel Shocknell's authority. Muel Shocknell knew this all too well, but more importantly, it must have been abundantly clear to everyone, undermining Muel Shocknell's credibility. All that said, the war between the two was clearly going nowhere fast. Like so many conflicts in Gaelic Ireland over the previous centuries, neither could land that decisive blow. The two protagonists were essentially threading water, without any sign of quitting. However, a most unusual solution was around the corner. But before we hear about this solution, I want to take a detour around Ireland in the year 1000 to give an understanding of the world Brian and Will Shocknell lived in. Because, while it was similar, Gaelic Ireland had changed since we started the podcast series around the year 800. In episode 1, I described what Ireland was like around the year 800. Since then, we've covered the rule of eight O'Neill High Kings, from Welshocknell I to Welshocknell II today. Over the rule of these kings, much did remain the same, but at the same time, some things did change greatly. If anyone in 1000 AD had sat down to answer the question you often hear asked of historians today, what event changed life most in the last 200 years or so? They would, probably to a person, have answered the arrival of the Vikings. By the year 1000, politically speaking, the Vikings had failed to make a mark by taking over large tracts of land, but they had nonetheless transformed Ireland economically in the 200 years since they had first arrived. At Dublin, they had transformed a once quiet settlement on a crossing of the River Liffey into a hub of international trade. 
where slaves and trading goods from all across Europe were exchanged. Africans, Arabs and traders from across Europe visited or were forced to be brought there as slaves. This increased trade not only created far closer connections between Ireland and the wider world, but it also saw the first money economy emerge in Ireland, indicated by the construction of a mint in Dublin in 995. Outside the Viking Hell settlements, they also had a general impact on life on the island. The arrival of the Vikings saw the Gaelic Irish, for example, engage in greater seafaring. We have seen in the last two episodes how the Northern O'Neill, by the mid-10th century, engaged in widespread warfare on water. Most famously, Murtoch Machneil attacked the Viking settlements on the Western Isles of Scotland in the mid-10th century. While the arrival of the Vikings brought increased waterborne transport to Ireland, they did little, however, to change the difficulties posed by overland travel, which was still difficult, slow, arduous and dangerous. Today, I think we would find the trappings of overland medieval travel almost unbearable. People would be constantly wet if the weather was bad. Sleeping rough would definitely be a prospect if we failed to make the journey in a day. I'm not sure that people would be willing to endure it, given that we can get from Ireland to New Zealand probably quicker than someone could get from Dublin to Cork, overland around the year 1000 CE. Daily life was still lived closely impacted by natural rhythms of nature. Days were literally longer in summer and shorter in winter, as activity effectively ended with sunset. Most houses had little light after dark, save a fire that was lit for heat. Candles, where they could be afforded, provided light after dark. But candlelight was nothing compared to modern electric lighting. Indeed, during this period, people used tallow candles made from animal fat, which were smoky and emitted a horrid, acrid smell. In terms of food, people were still extremely dependent on the weather, which meant that bad years produced famines frequently. However, around 1000 AD, there was hope and change on this front, which came in the form of a small but very important warming in the medieval climate. Between 950 and 1000, the climate across Europe changed, ushering in what scientists call the medieval warm period, which would last until the closing decades of the 13th century. It's highly unlikely people realised or could contemplate the idea of a change in climate, but they would have noticed the knock-on effects. For example, famines occurred far less frequently and bumper harvests were far more frequent. This can be seen in the decades we're discussing today, where there's far fewer famines. And, indeed, in 981 and 985, bumper crops were recorded in the Annals of Ulster and the Annals of Inishfallen. These prolific crops would have been a great occasion, as people could rejoice in the surety of not only surviving free from famine, but they would also have had a good supply of food for the year and it wouldn't run short in spring as often happened in the medieval period. These improved conditions did not prevent natural disasters and this society, just like the one we discussed in episode 1 around 800, was still very vulnerable to nature. For example, all buildings were built entirely or in part from wood or other natural materials and were susceptible to lightning damage Now today we have lightning rods which deflect the destructive power of lightning but in the year 1000 they had no such protection. 
according to the annals of the Four Masters, when Armagh was struck by lightning in 996, it did not leave unburnt an oratory, stone church, vestibule or wooden sanctuary. Disease too was still a frequent problem. Indeed, as we heard in the last show, it was probably getting worse as increased trade served to spread disease faster. In 987, an unusual disease known as St Vitius's Dance broke out in the east of Ireland. The disease known as Sydenham's Chorea, which is associated with rheumatic fever, led to frantic spasming of the limbs. Some historians have argued that Sydenham's Chorea explains a phenomenon called dancing mania that spread across Europe in the later Middle Ages. Either way, the disease perplexed and terrified Gaelic Ireland in 987. In the absence of a scientific explanation, one annal described the illness as a sickness caused by sorcery inflicted by demons in the east of Ireland. In times of crisis, people still heavily lent on a supernatural understanding of the world, a view that, as the quote above shows, was distinctly pagan. Indeed, paganism, by a thousand AD, was not completely gone. As we saw earlier, Brian Baru's Dal Kosh still crowned their kings at sacred trees, a custom that long predated Christianity. If you're interested in the survival of paganism, there's an extensive article on my blog, irishhistorypodcast.ie, that's worth checking out. As Ireland moved towards a new millennium, the change it had witnessed was limited, given what we understand as change today. Indeed, Ireland changed least in the two centuries between 800 and 1000 than in any other two centuries since. People had a similar view of the world as their parents, grandparents and great-grandparents. They shared similar religious ideas and ambitions in life. They dressed like their parents, grandparents and great-grandparents. We will appreciate a far greater change when we return to this subject, when we reach the year 1200, a review that will have to factor in the impact of the Norman invasion. Now we'll return to the war between Brian and Wales Shocknell, which was about to be altered by a unique event in Gaelic Ireland. With the arrival of the last decade of the first millennium, there seemed to be little way out of the deadlock that existed between Brian and Wales Shocknell. The war seemed endless. In 991, Brian was on the attack, while in 992 saw the two armies meet and face each other off in Connacht without a battle. In 993, Brian attacked at the Shannon, while Wales Shocknell countered by attacking Munster and burning the settlement of Nina in North Tipperary. It was in the aftermath of Mwell Shocknell's raid that the two armies finally met in battle. But, although Mwell Shocknell emerged victorious, it was in no way decisive, and this war of tit-for-tat attacks was clearly going nowhere. In 996, the situation continued in a stalemate when Brian fortified Thomond and took hostages from Leinster, solidifying his grip over the southern half of the country. There was no hope of a breakthrough in this situation. Now people could have expected that this would continue for decades. Indeed, that's the way war seemed to have been in Gaelic Ireland. So it must have come as a bolt out of the blue when in 997 the initial idea of a meeting between the kings was mooted. Such an event was unique and must have been incredibly difficult to organise 
They would have to agree who could accompany each king to the event. What military force would each be allowed to bring? Both were probably deeply suspicious of a trap. Finding somewhere that was neutral to have the event would also be another problem. Eventually, an agreement to have a meeting was hammered out. The two kings acquiesced to meeting at the Monastery of Clonfert in 997. When the day arrived, there must have been great fanfare, as Brian and Moel Shocknell presumably met for the first time off the battlefield. Regardless of the natural animosity that must have existed between them, they also must have had a grudging respect for each other. For Brian Baru, this day was a testament to an incredible life. Even getting to the table with an O'Neill High King for someone like him, coming from where he had come from, was an outstanding achievement. He had begun life fighting for survival in a localised feud in the 960s in the Lower Shannon Basin against the Limerick Vikings, and now he was sitting as an equal with the O'Neill High King. From Wales Shocknell, there was hope in this meeting too. If an agreement could be made, which could end the war that had seen his power eroded, it couldn't be negative. It would at least give him time to reorganise his military forces. When they got down to business, 20 years of indecisive warfare had shown that in the short term, neither one was likely to emerge as victor. Unsurprisingly, in this scenario, a treaty was agreed, which acknowledged the situation on the ground. They agreed to split Ireland between them, Brian controlling the southern half and Wales Shocknell claiming the northern half. The greatest change, however, was that Brian gained control of Dublin from Wales Shocknell, an aspect that illustrated the power and commanding position that Brian maintained at the negotiations. As Ireland entered new territory of peace, between the two most powerful blocks, could the new millennium be one of peace? Not likely. The peace was unlikely to last, given that the two kings coveted what the other had. Brian wanted to be king, and Wales Shocknell wanted to regain his stature as high king. They had little reason not to go to war if an opportunity presented itself. The best way to understand this deal, I think, is a parallel with the 20th century. The 20th century saw a similar global situation when the US and the Soviet Union fought what was called the Cold War. Now the Cold War never erupted, despite the fact the two were mutually hostile. This only happened because of what is known as mutually assured destruction, in that both armies possessed nuclear weapons, so a war would have ended up in both powers being destroyed. In 997 in Ireland though, the opposite was the case. Brian and Wales Shocknell had fought for 20 years and it was clear that a war would not destroy them both so there was little reason for the peace to last if either saw an opportunity. There was also another reason that we've touched on earlier on and this was that both had internal enemies. Wales Shocknell technically controlled the Northern O'Neills but as we've seen and as we shall see they were completely independent of him and at times would be hostile. Now, from where Shocknell had his problems, Brian too had enemies within his ranks. The allegiance of the kingdoms of Leinster and the Vikings of Dublin was tenuous, to say the least. Any one of these problems could easily upset the delicate peace that was agreed at Clonfert. Indeed, this peace was just a calm before the storm, where all sides could get refreshed, tooled up and ready for war. 
In short, all the problems and tensions that created the war in the first place were all still there, regardless of whether the two biggest players pretended to be friends. In 1998, pretenses were kept up when Brian and Will Shocknell swapped the hostages of various provinces to copper-fasten the agreement. Will Shocknell gave Brian the hostages he had taken from Dublin, which made Brian the de facto ruler there, while Brian did likewise with hostages he had taken from Connacht. However, within a year, in 999, as time was drawn on a millennium, the agreement began to falter. The Vikings of Dublin never really accepted Brian's rule and had to be levied hard by a joint army of Brian and Wales Shocknell. In response to this, they formed an alliance with a faction within the Kingdom of Leinster who had been excluded from power by Brian. They captured Brian's ally in the kingdom, Donacha MacDonald Clan, and put a rival on the throne. This meant war. Indeed, it was a declaration of war on Brian. Although it was in the depths of winter, Brian moved quickly to quash this. Mobilising an army in wintry conditions could not have been easy. But this didn't stop them. Eventually, after gathering his forces, they trekked from Munster towards Dublin. It's even possible that Mwea Shocknell joined him to put down the rebellion. The sources differ on this. A few days after Christmas Day, in 999, the Leinster and Dublin rebels met Brian and possibly Mwea Shocknell at Glen Mama in a location now lost to history, somewhere in the foothills of the Wicklow Mountains. The result was never in doubt. In the biting cold, Brian's army, possibly bolstered by an O'Neill force, routed the Leinster men and their Viking allies. In the aftermath of the battle, if the O'Neills were present, the joint army broke up, and at this point, Will Shocknell returned to Meath, while Brian fixed his view on Dublin. He was going to punish the rebel city. Descending from the Wicklow Mountains, they passed from one millennium to another, and on New Year's Day, 1000 CE, the army of Munster arrived at Dublin. The defeat of Glenmama rendered Dublin defenceless, and the king, Citric Silkenbeard, fled the city before the arrival of an army who proceeded to sack the settlement, destroying the city's fortress, which probably stood where Dublin Castle stands today. In Dublin, Brian now had control over his half of the island. There was no opposition left. A few miles north of the river Liffey, though, he could see what was his long-time enemy and recent friend, Muel Shocknell's homeland. With the economy and the military force of Dublin now in train, he had achieved all he could in the south, in his half of the island. With a drive, a temperament and an attitude like Brian's, he couldn't stand still, and the desire was too much for a man like Brian Baru. At Dublin, he started to build an enormous army of Dublin Vikings, Leinstermen, cohorts from South Connacht, Ossery, and of course, the veterans of the army of Munster. There was only one place this army could go. Brian was going to go for broke and try and displace Mwea Shocknell as High King. In the year 1000, a new millennium saw Brian Baru dispatch the initial invasion force of Meath, as a cavalry force of Leinstermen and Dublin Vikings were dispatched north across the Liffey. In sending these troops across the River Liffey, Brian Baru had crossed his Rubicon. He had declared war on Wales Shocknell. The Treaty of Clonfert was in tatters. This time, the issue would be resolved, once and for all. 
to tune in next time to find out how this unfolding situation led to a devastating war. One that will finally lure the Northern O'Neills out of isolation. And how the Battle of Clontarf, Ireland's most famous medieval battle, fits into the story. Until next time, Sloan. Keep your feedback coming to history at irishhistorypodcast.ie and don't forget to send in suggestions of what aspects of these podcast series you'd like to see in the upcoming book on the Black Death. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.